my name is Pearl Rosen-Golden, and I am pleased to moderate this panel titled Art Creates Creativity to Engage Children with Various Disabilities. Speakers for this session are Angelica Pina Perez from Art Beyond Sight and Art Education for the Blind, Carol Kreiser from the Western Pennsylvania School for the Blind for Blind Children, Danielle Rome from the Queens Museum of Art. I I um, ask the panelists to consider the following in their discussion. The word "engage" takes on special meaning when used in conjunction with with children with disabilities. For them, engaging in art or other other activities can be a difficult process. For museum educators and teachers of the arts, considering how the child will engage is at the heart of planning and execution. This session will discuss our experiences and best practices in making art meaningful for children with disabilities. Our first speaker is going to be Angelica Pina Perez. Um, Angelica is a social worker and drama therapist, performance artist, as well as a PhD candidate at the European Graduate School in Switzerland. Her focus is on the philosophy and psychology of performance and how the practice of producing art uh, helps facilitate human development and awareness. She teaches theater classes in the U.S. and Italy and also coaches individuals by using the arts to facilitate emotional and psych psychological breakthroughs to increase creativity, spontaneity, and joy. She has an MA from New York University and MSW from Fordham University. Angelica? Thank you, Pearl. <laughs> yes, I just, I'd like to just um, thank you for the opportunity to participate in this panel first off and, and really just to begin by where I begin with all of my sessions with children with varying different abilities. Um, it, it's just to kind of be present with them and start from as organic places where they need me to start from. So that can vary from group to group. And engaging them can be quite um, difficult or quite easy depending on a variety of factors. I just truly fundamentally believe in the ability and the power of all art making, especially when done communally, to facilitate um, growth and change in any human being. It's pre-verbal. It's, it's what we've done for centuries as human beings. And my goal with the groups that I facilitate, particularly with vision-impaired children, um, some of which, too, who are struggling with some emotional disturbances, is to create a context and a safe space where they feel that they can also be playful, spontaneous, and also organically kind of create something together. So that was a fine introduction. I think we'll have each each person do a presentation, and then we can get more involved in questions. So Excellent. we will on next to Carol Kreiser. Carol has worked for 33 years at the Western Pennsylvania School for the Blind in a variety of positions after obtaining a master's degree uh, in education for the visually for visually impaired children from the University of Pittsburgh. Um, Carol, who was a classroom teacher, then became uh, the arts and crafts teacher. She will discuss innovative 
classes and programs she has developed for her students in collaboration with museums and a music teacher. Carol? Thank you, Pearl. Um, Pearl asked us to focus on the word engage, so I'm going to talk about some of the ways I try to inspire my students when doing a project. My students are 6 to 21 years old, and they all have multiple special needs. One of the things I personally try to do is keep up on the current trends. Um, one of my favorite projects is ceramic pocket pots. And this is a simple project in which the clay is rolled into a slab. The slab is embossed with different textures, then cut out with a pattern for the front and back. The two pieces are slipped together to form a pocket. It is then fired under glazed and glazed and fired again. I find with my students it's beneficial to do projects which repeat the same techniques. I think this increases the comfort level of the student. So in the course of 15 years, my students might make six pocket pots, but I constantly change the theme. One year for Valentine's Day, we made heart-shaped pots embossed with lace. We've used leaves for a nature theme. We've also used clay hammers and stamps and objects found in the art room. The year Pirates of the Caribbean came out, I filled a wooden chest with junk jewelry, plastic gold coins, and I even found a small plastic skeleton. The students loved opening the treasure chest and selecting which items to use. Pirates were hot that year, so it sparked a lot of excitement and conversation. And speaking of conversation, everyone likes talking about food or their pets or the weather. So take the ordinary and make it extraordinary. One year I had my students make accordion books, one for each season. The cover and page were decorated with different printing techniques. Each book had a simple poem written by the students by finishing a sentence, and I call these simile poems. For example, the title of the book was Winter, and the first sentence would be, Taste like, and the student would fill in something they would taste in the winter. So winter tastes like candy canes, smells like chicken soup, feels like a warm coat, is the dance of snowflakes in the wind, etc. Each poem was personal for the students. One of my parents told me she actually cried when she got the book. Her child was writing poetry, and it was beautiful. When doing a project, I like to use cool materials and tools. I use punches, paper edgers, paper crimpers, glitter glues, silk flowers, and a lot of collage materials. My students love bright colors and metallics and texture. I am always looking for ways to add texture. A few years ago, Roger Thomas, the school's music teacher, and I attended the Art Beyond Site Conference in New York City. One of the speakers said that the best way to experience a culture was to eat the food and wear the clothing. We liked that idea and developed Culture Class, a multimodal approach to teaching about other countries in periods of time. <clears throat> so far, we have done 16 units. Each unit lasts four weeks, one class a week. 
We do map skills, language, history, art, music, and social customs. I have made Japanese happy coats, Moroccan burnouses, and Greek robes for the students to wear. Students have cooked in a wok and rolled sushi. We've had guest presenters who have played unusual instruments, dancers, and even the captain of a local dragging boating team who brought oars and the prow of the boat. One of my favorite units was the life and times of Mozart. We culminated the unit with tea with Mozart. The week before the tea, we made wigs from paper bags and white paper to be worn at the tea. Dr. Simon, the director of the school at the time, surprised us by the delivery of the school's silver tea service for us to use. I had whole leaf tea, which few people had seen or used. Where were the tea bags? While I brewed the tea, I talked about it and let the students examine some of the tea. We also had cookies and iced tea. Once everyone was served, Mozart entered the room, dressed in gold brocade, lace, and a white wig. He sat down at the piano and played one of his compositions. Then he joined us for tea and told us about his life. The students were allowed to examine some of his clothing and ask him questions. Of course, the students recognized the voice of their music teacher, but they played along. The year we studied ancient Egypt, we took a field trip to the Carnegie Museum's Hall of Egyptology. I found local museums to be an excellent resource. I honestly didn't realize what museums had to offer until I started taking in-services at them. That got me into the local museums and opened my eyes to the possibilities. I found the museum staff to be very accommodating in meeting the needs of my students. The Carnegie Museum talked to me about ways to make the field trip a success. The docents we had were all retired teachers. Two of them had been special ed teachers. Part of our trip included time in the object room. The Carnegie has replicas of some of the items in the exhibit, which can be handled and touched. One of the objects was what our docent called an Egyptian pillow. It is a small headrest to keep your head elevated so the scorpions don't crawl into your ears. Everyone likes a good story, and my students loved it. I've not only taken students on field trips to museums, I've done projects with them. One year, as an Art Beyond Site project, we did an installation in the Winifred Lutz Garden at the Mattress Factory. A group of my students visited the Mattress Factory. We were allowed to take plant materials from the garden, which we used to emboss and make ceramic tiles. The museum paid for two Pittsburgh artists who came to the school and worked with some of my students. We made items with a nature theme ceramic pots embossed with leaves, large ceramic leaves, baskets made from recycled cereal boxes, banners made with petals from silk flowers, and two trees of life. When the installation went up, the mattress factory decided to have an opening event for the students, just as they would for any other artist. It was an all-around wonderful experience for my students. I think it's important for my students to participate in projects that involve something bigger than the school. Every year I do at least one of what I call a give back project. This is artwork that does not go home with the student. 
2010 has been a year of butterflies for us. Last spring, we made over 200 butterflies to send to the Holocaust Museum Houston for their butterfly project. The museum is trying to collect 1.5 million butterflies in memory of the children who died during the Holocaust. Currently, we are making butterfly ornaments for the Braille Awareness Tree in Harrisburg. This will be the fourth year we have sent ornaments for the tree. I do these projects because I think everyone should have an opportunity to give. If we have time at the end of art class, I read stories. We have dozens of stories on tape in our school library, but I really think nothing can replace a person sitting in the room and reading a story. Every month, the class selects a favorite store, and we create large illustrations for the library windows. We use different textures to make the illustrations as interesting as possible. We have also done puppet shows based on stories. Students create the puppets, select sound effects and music, perform, and even act as greeters at the performance. This is the ultimate blending of literature, music, social skills, and art. Thank you for this opportunity to share. If you would like more information, you can email me at kreiserc at wpsbc.org. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. That was great. So many good examples. Um, um, I hope we get a chance to go back and pick out some of the details of them. Our next presenter is Danielle Rome. Danielle uh, and I have a special relationship. Um, she now holds the position at the Queens Museum of Art that I once held, and she's doing a fabulous job there. Thank you. Uh, Danielle joined the Queens Museum of Art in 2004. She supervises the Art Access Program, a community-based art therapy program for children and adults with special needs or in special situations. Ms. Rome worked in the design of an art therapy initiative in several correctional uh, educational programs. Ms. Rome is a contributor to the New York City Department of Education's Blueprint for Teaching and Learning in the Arts. She is a nationally registered board certified art therapist who owes a master's degree in creative arts therapy from Hofstra University and a bachelor's degree in fine arts from Adelphi University. Danielle, it's all yours. Hi, thank you, Pearl. You can hear me? Yes, just fine. Okay, great. I just want to thank Art Education for the Blind for this opportunity to come together and discuss about engagement for children with various um, abilities. As uh, Pearl had mentioned, I am the manager of the Art Access Program at the Queens Museum of Art. We've had a long history of having programs specifically designed for people with special needs for over 25 years now. And one of the main things that we do and we work with is a lot of the times we have school groups coming in. Um, so the kids are here from self-contained special education classes, and they're with us for about two and a half hours. Some of the kids are here once out of the whole year, and some of the students come maybe once a month for a longer residency. But the biggest thing that we do is we're trying really hard to engage the students. Um, as many as you know, if you can remember when you're a child going into a museum, it can be very intimidating. So when you're a child with special needs, it can be even extra intimidating because you don't know the space, you don't know uh, the facilities, you're used to a schedule. So we work really hard to make that 
exciting and more comfortable for each student. Earlier in the day, uh, Danielle Stevens had mentioned something that enthusiasm is contagious. And that's something that's really big here at the museum. We are extremely enthusiastic when the kids come in. I spend about 20 minutes just doing a lot of getting to know the kids before we even go on a gallery tour or before we do anything in the workshop. And as Carol had mentioned, you have to keep up with the current trends. Um, myself and my uh, colleague, Michelle Lopez, we go to all of the kids' movies. We go to all of the uh, music that the kids are listening to. I know many, many wrestling stories from WWE SmackDown because that's <laughs> what the kids are into. So we are aware of all of it. So when the kids walk in and we have them, we're getting to know their names. I'm also kind of acting like I'm on a stage doing a wrestling move, uh, joking around or talking about a new movie or a new um, trend that's going on just to get the kids comfortable before we really go around the museum and see what we're going to explore. And our museum, it holds a historical piece, the panorama from the New York City um, 1964 World's Fair and Lewis Comfort Tiffany Glass, but then it also holds a lot of different contemporary art. And that work can be extremely interesting, but also extremely confusing when it's a little conceptual. So our job is to really engage the students into the artwork, and that could mean everything. I'll give the best example that I have is um, last exhibit we had a launch pad. We had a piece by Duke Riley. It was called Those Who About to Die, Those Who About to Die Salute You. It was a huge recreation um, of some naval battleships from Roman and Greek times where they actually had a performance piece way back in August, but in the museum we had one of the boats. He had made these life-size boats, and he made the Colosseum, um, a part of our gallery looked like the old Colosseum, and it was this huge battle, but it was very interesting to explain it to the kids. So for about three months, my colleague and I, we came to work dressed in togas. Um, I know, Carol, you had mentioned dressing up about Mozart. That is something that excites kids when they see someone dressed up. We met the groups downstairs fully dressed up in togas as Greek gods and goddesses, and we got them really involved in the art piece by living part of it. We were in the galleries. We were enacting it out. The kids made their own togas. They learned about it. They got to speak art. And they got to live art. So that's one of the goals that we have here at the museum is that you really live the artwork. You're in the galleries and you're acting out what's happening in the photographs or the painting. We're looking at tactile models or pieces that the artists have given us to help engage the students in the artwork. It might be a material that the artist used in one of their pieces. It might be um, a video rendition of how they did their work or how they installed it. So the kids can really engage to all aspects of what they're seeing in the museum. And let me see, the other thing I wanted to talk about is beyond the props and the tools and the role playing, it's also just giving a lot of one-to-one -one engagement. We work with self-contained special education students, so it's usually about 12 students in the class, and we usually always have two staff together so that one of us can really connect with each student individually and one of us can lead the group. Um, when we're making the art, we make sure that we're completely accessible, meaning we're accessible to the student through eye contact. There's no tables or chairs in the middle lane. It's a place where we can walk down and get down and talk to the kids so they see us one-to-one. -one. So we really give them positive reinforcement. There have been times that I've had students come into the museum right when I meet them downstairs, and the first thing they say to me is, I'm stupid. 
and I don't like art. And so I then spend the next two and a half hours really working with that child, and by the time he's done, he's proud of the artwork he made, and he's excited about what he did. It's always been a goal of mine that I love when they learn something here at the museum, but if they don't learn anything at the museum, but they learn something about themselves and they're proud of what they did, then it was a successful trip. So I'm, probably, I'm not sure how long I'm on time because I talk fast. I think we're okay. We're okay. We have, um, we were supposed to all speak for 10 minutes and we're under that, so that means we have a lot of time to, to chat. Um, anything else you wanted to add, Danielle? Um, just one other thing, uh, just talking about engaging the students before they walk in, because I was listening um, to Amanda from the, I think it was the Dallas Museum of Art in the previous um, conference, is that they do a lot of registration. Now, when we do our intake for the school groups coming in, we don't just check the date and the time when they're coming in. We spend about a half hour to 20 minutes on the phone with them, personal cell phones back and forth, just to learn a little bit about their students, learn what they like. If they have students that are very much into Pokemon, we will reabreast ourselves with Pokemon. So when we meet them, we know what we're going to interact with them about. And we kind of figure out what level they are on and where they're their goals for their students that they have, where they're going, and we try to incorporate those. And we might even have some of those props in our room, especially if we have a group with um, children with autism. If we know that they are interested in the subway trains, we will have pre-printed images of the subway trains just to help them engage into the room and to the process of what we're doing that day. So that's that's great. Yeah. So many examples. Wow. Look what in just a few minutes we've been talking. It's just you could write a book. Just on what we talked about in terms of approaches and benefits for multimod multimodal view. I can't talk today. Um, uh, the the kind of approaches that we're making these are really the the, the techniques that engage children in um, art, in the creative art, in drama, and in stepping out of themselves and into the possibilities of art. So I'd like to continue this discussion. Um, we're going to uh, open up for um, any comments or questions that are out there. Is uh, someone like to join our discussion or have any questions? Anybody? Carl, well, this is Carol, and um, I'd just like to say uh, what Danielle was saying about talking to the museum staff. As mm -hmm. a teacher, I really do appreciate when the museum staff takes the time to say, what kind of things would you like to get out of this event? Mm -hmm. You know, that really helps me a lot, and I feel that, you know, the more closely you can work with the museum staff as a teacher, the better your experience for the students is going to be. Definitely. Thank you, Carol. So sometimes we've actually had the museum staff come and you know, meet some of my students and come to the school. I've yeah. had that done, especially when I'm working on a project with a museum. We've done that in the past, too. And just as um, a museum personnel, it really helps us a lot when we can get a personal interest on what the teacher is working with and the students because we want it to be more than just a trip. We want it to be their first entrance into a lifelong learning institute, something that they will continue to engage with as they grow. Yes, this is Angelica. I just wanted to piggyback on that comment. I'm actually, one, one of the ways that I work is I actually go into the classroom. Students don't come to me. And so I work very closely 
And I think it's an integral part of any sort of art staff or arts organization to have people go into the field as well and work with the teachers because ultimately it's the teachers who um, can help to reinforce whatever that we're starting to work on creatively on a consistent basis. So I found my best allies have always been in the classroom, the teachers that are, are there on the front lines day in and day out and um, working to create curriculum together based on implementing the arts in the classroom um, and how that can transcend outside of the actual hour or so that I'm with that particular class but how then that imaginative play can carry on as a thread throughout the day in order to deal with kind of behavioral redirection, for example, with some special needs children who particularly also are um, dealing with different abilities. You know, so things that teachers and I have kind of come up with to intervene, for example, um, to listen uh, in a creative and more fun way rather than a more traditional way that some people might experience we've created, and this has been created by other people as well, the listening llama, which is um, a hand gesture that replicates the kind of a puppet-looking llama figure, kind of like a dog with the pinky finger and the first index finger up straight, almost like a U, but our middle fingers and our thumb creating the mouth of this listening llama, that this is our signal for redirection, um, that students now are just every time that they want to be heard or that they feel that the classroom is getting too loud, the listening llama appears, right? And this is a verbal and, and physical cue for silence. So uh, teachers are, are amazing in then carrying that over and now it's become an integral part of behavioral modification. So, Wow, I love that idea. I'm, I'm stealing that one. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. It, it, it does work really well. And also it does work, actually, yeah. Um, I, I have a question also, maybe more for, for Danielle. Um, you were saying that you, spe you, you have the opportunity to spend some time on the phone with the family and, and the kids, which is... Uh, very much a great advantage um, for your museum and to prepare the visit. Um, but I'd like to know uh, um, from everyone and you, um, how do you deal with the variety of needs that you can have in one group? Because you can have uh, a kid who functions really well and another one who um, might have a hard time, and I'm wondering how you address that during the visit. Oh, right. That, that happens a lot. Um, <laughs> One thing I might say, too, is, you know, you spend time on the phone with the teacher and you get the information about the students, but I do a very quick assessment as an introduction when the kids are there. And this helps me, too, not just with the varying abilities, but also their um, developmental level and their emotional level. I usually mm -hmm. ask the kids what your favorite movie is. And inevitably, I'll have one student sitting next to another student. He'll say, well, my favorite movie is SpongeBob SquarePants. And the next student's favorite movie is Saw 4. So you also have to adjust to how you're speaking to the students, not just their varying abilities, but their level of understanding. One is watching a major horror movie and the other is doing SpongeBob SquarePants. So it takes a lot of dancing around, but one thing I have to mention, I'm very lucky that I have two educators always in the room together. Mm -hmm. And that makes 
just a difference because you can only do so much as one person to engage with all the levels. But all of our directives that we create um, are very adaptable to any physical um, need. But when we're downstairs and we're looking at the workshops and we're looking at the galleries and we're getting the information um, from them, you're going to hear a lot of different um, understanding of the artwork. It's very important to constantly, um, I think, redirect and re-say. It can sound a little rep rep repetitious, but to re-say what one child has said to another and connect them the best that we can so that they're all learning on one level. Mm -hmm. So it takes a... Um, it takes a lot of time, but I'm happy to say that I have two people in order to help do it. Mm -hmm. That makes a major difference. Thank you. Um, I, um, I guess I'd like to add, you know, we have so many different ways that we're talking about engagement in terms of um, assessing the children, in terms of um, for, for that, uh, drama and using uh, props and lots of ways to engage them. And, um, but for those people who are thinking about, well, I'm about to sit down and do an, plan an art project for children with special needs, some of the um, techniques that I use um, and now mainly teach about, I'm not uh, working with children as much anymore, just here and there, um, is the idea of very staged lessons so that you have clear objectives in each thing you're doing. Um, and generally, I have where um, the art project will start with one material, where it will be very clear what to do with that material. And then the next level will be an easy transition to another material, so that if we're starting out cutting paper, right, then the paper can, can go on the page, and then paint can come on that, so that there is a clear uh, example of what children can do next, how can they interact with the, the paint on the paper um, with the cutout shape. And these kinds of things of thinking very simply in layering of art activities really help for engaging children in, in especially art process. So pretty much any material that I use with kids, I'm always clearly breaking it down into simple steps that will just keep them engaged in it rather than just one material that they will work with for a long time. So that's, that's been my, my thing for a while now, and just wanted to add that. <laughs> um, one technique but, I use is I, I always say I'm the queen of task analysis. I take <laughs> a project and I break it down into the smallest steps I can because I'm looking for as many opportunities for independence yeah. and as many ways as I can because a lot of my students will use communication equipment. They need to develop occupational therapy skills, behavior skills. So I find by breaking everything down into the smallest, simplest steps that the staff who really know the children and know these special skills can kind of plug into my activity. And that frees us to be a little more um, creative. And for my children, a big thing is being able to make choices because they don't get a lot of opportunities to make choices. You know, things are done for them a lot. So I try to give them as many opportunities to make choices and to express themselves as possible. 
Yep, that's very, very important, and that moves towards, um, you know, independent living. Um, children have to become their own uh, advocates, and that all happens in the process of making choices. So um, it, it's amazing how these kinds of things that you do in art can play a much greater role in the life of that child simply by saying, I want red paper, I mean, as opposed to just, Having having a color paper placed in front of them, um, and I think some of the questions I uh, I had uh, for you was um, in your work that you're all doing now. Um, where would you like to see your work progress to? That's that's a hard <laughs> question, Pearl. Um, in the work that we're doing here at the museum, we would love, um, and we're in the process of expanding a lot of our programs, so they're not just accessible for someone in a school group, but they're accessible for students with their families, students on their own. Um, as they get older, we have more adult groups, more adolescent groups. Um, that's one thing that we are looking to provide, a lot more of adolescent programming for adolescents with special needs. So I'm hoping that the museum and our work will just continue in making everything accessible and increasing programming that we have to offer for our Queens residents here. Any, anybody else? I would say I kind of like to get my kids more involved in community things because we're in a school that um, they don't interact as much with their peers of their same age. So I'm always trying to looking for activities that will kind of get them out into the world. So I love group activities, and I, I love groups like, you know, the Holocaust Museum Project and, and working with museums that, that get my students kind of out of their environment and into the world. Yes, and um, to add on that, I, I this is Angelica speaking. I think my hope for the work that I do where I, I go specifically into the classroom um, kind of to help kind of reignite the, the the imaginative flame that's definitely there but which we all know as as teaching artists or artists or people who use the arts is being ever more and more dampened by various um, outside world stressors and world realities that aren't necessarily the enemy like technology um, but it's very much, you know, when I do my assessments and checking in with the students and how they pass their time or, or what they think about during their time, their free time, if they even have it, um, it's, it's, you know, it's PlayStation. It's, um, it is going to the movies. It's watching TV for hours on end or, or listening to, to, to TV. So it's um, kind of reminding and, and reinforcing playfulness and, and how that also teaches spontaneity and, and our, our true organic choices coming from within, right, that they can really trust themselves to also have fun in, in, a, in a true uh, playful way that is, is really connecting to a, a core essence of being, which we tend to kind of, no matter what the age is, whether it's a four-year-old with special needs or a 80-year-old with special needs, um, especially, you know, that forgotten, the forgotten few of the middle schoolers, I think, is also where I'd like to see my work really focus on, is that there's a lot of elementary school work and 
somewhat I do some more adolescent stuff, but it's the middle schoolers too that that need some some special programming in this sense. Um, to add on to what you said, I um, I teach in college, and I'm teaching early childhood teachers primarily this semester, and I'm, there's lots of work to be done with teachers as well and helping them also be playful and um, appreciating that if you want to reach students, this is at, their, at the heart of them, that they really enjoy playfulness and respond to it. And um, uh, so it's really throughout our society that if we want to engage any child or anybody, you really need to think about what is that way we're going to reach for them. And often, very often, playfulness is a way. I completely agree with you, Pearl, and I did forget to mention the one thing we also do at the museum is that when we have groups here, we don't have the teachers um, assisting the children. We actually have the teachers and the teaching aides making their own art and creating their own pieces alongside with their students, and it creates like a bonding experience for all of the students because they're all on the same level pretty much when it comes to making art and exploring something that's new and different. So they learn together, and they can see their teacher struggling with something or their teaching aide struggling with something and problem-solving it as they learn to struggle and problem-solve. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, is there um, anywhere in the audience that has any questions or would like to add to our discussion? I have a question. It's Elizabeth Axel. Hi, Pearl. Hi. Um, are there any um, books uh, that you all have read that you found to be really helpful to you in, um, in your teaching, either inspiring or practical? I have Hello? Um, Hi, sorry, this is Danielle from the Queens Museum. Uh -huh. I have um, one book that, um, it's not, I found it to be extremely important to me. I read a while ago, and it's a small vignette. It's called The Elephant in the Playroom. And it's very small vignettes about um, parental, parental figures telling the story about how um, the community has interacted to their child with special needs and how it is to have a child with special needs, and many, many different um, various special needs are talked about in this book. And they're just small little vignettes, and it's something that I've always come back to. It has nothing to do with art making or um, creativity in that manner. It just happens to be a very heartfelt and inspiring book that I find myself giving to a lot of the teens that we work with in our access program and different educators, because it just gives you a really true story of, of what parents are going through, and it helps us make the programming accessible for them. Hmm. Well, um, in a uh, book that influenced um, art making, um, I have a, a couple that I turn to all the time. Um, one of them is, uh, and both of them were written by um, museum educators that, that make art. Um, one is Muriel um, Silberstein at the um, Metropolitan Museum of Art. She has a book called Doing Art Together. And um, uh, another is by a whole series of books um, by Joyce Raimondo, um, who was a, a family program educator at the uh, Museum of Modern Art and went out to develop her own programs and books. Our books are really wonderful in that they are showing art process as well as um, 
information about the artwork, how to talk about the artwork. So it works on a lot of levels. Um, I also really like uh, Kathy uh, Weissman Topal's books. She has several, um, one on children in clay, children in painting, and uh, children um, with found, um, using found objects. And those have been really good practical books you know, for people who may not be as familiar with art practice and want um, something to turn to. There's also um, quite a few nice books that the National Art and Education Association um, has put out um, for art for children with uh, special needs. They have a few, one on autism um, and one on reaching out uh, called Reaching and Teaching. Um, so uh, those are good, good references for kids with, for working with children with special needs. As well as, not to forget, the Art Education Book, Art Education for the Blind Book, um, Art Beyond Sight. Got to give the right plug. Okay. Um, anybody else want to add to our discussion? Yes, it's actually uh, Murray from Art Education for Blind. Uh, speaking of um, books or um, there is one also that I, I recommend and I recently heard of is um, Stephen Convey's um, Theory of Circle of Concern and Circle of Influence, which I think uh, bumps him back um, of what you were saying, uh, Pearl, about teaching um, um, college students. I think one of the of a challenge that a young teacher, educator can encounter also at the beginning is finding out what they can actually achieve in the classroom or in, in the gallery and understanding that there's so much you can do and pretty much what this um, person present in this theory is that once you succeed in, in discerning what's your circle of concern um, versus what is your circle of, of influence, the circle of concerns being, for example, the fact that the kids might come from a low-income um, family and there's nothing you can do about that. But once you understand what you can actually do to help that kid, that's where you start being effective. So um, yeah. I, I can't get into details, but it's a very interesting theory, actually, as, as educators, and I think young educators, but also as you go on, uh, and depending on the, the population you work with. Mm -hmm. um. Is there anyone else that has that has joined our our group that like to comment about how they engage children in the arts? Well, I had a question. This is Amanda from the Dallas Museum of Art. Oh, hi. Hi, I had a question for the panelists about. They all mentioned um, different art making activities for children with special needs. But I was wondering if there were certain um, tools or adaptive materials that they turned to. Um, or places they often order from that have tools and supplies that work really well for mm -hmm. studio um, activities. Yep. Actually, that was one of my questions. So thank you for asking it, Amanda. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I have found that um, um, that uh, in terms of art materials that there is a ever-growing supply of more and more interesting art supplies. Um, uh, I think in your session they mentioned model magic as a tool, um, and that's um, really helpful tool. For those of you who um, want just small amounts of clay, um, uh, Crayola also makes a wonderful um, 
uh, regular clay now that's, that's very nice. It's a really nice clay to use in, um, in a classroom or a museum environment, um, and I've been, I've been using that in my classroom. There's also a whole new category of um, pastels that are out there that are um, water-soluble pastels, which are really nice for kids with special needs because they are so creamy. The colors are rich. You're not dealing with the, the pastel dust anymore, and you can um, use them with water. Um, so these are some of the supplies that I am really enjoying um, using now. Um, anybody else want to join in with uh, art supplies that, that are among your favorites? Sure. I like Oriental Trading Company. Um, I especially like their scrapbooking section because they have the punches, the scissors. I even use something called push scissors, which you can push on and they move so the you know, it's easier for the hand skills, and they have a lot of tactile objects, and, you know, Oriental Trading Company is pretty inexpensive, but they have a large variety of yeah. pretty, and they have a brand new art section, I guess, is about two years old, so you can find metallic paints, you can find pretty much anything at a really reasonable price. And, Carol, I'll jump in. The push scissors are absolutely great. We use them here at the museum. But also we like to find materials that are not intimidating to the parents or the teachers that are going to cost them a lot of money when they utilize them. Amanda, you yeah. had mentioned Model Magic. And Model Magic is great to make an adaptive tool for someone's motor skills. You can wrap that around the base of a paintbrush or a marker, and they can really hold on better to it instead of buying the adaptable paintbrushes, which can be expensive. They're usually four for about $9 from Dick Blick. And we have some of those, but the Model Magic creates adaptable motor tools. We also have used basic corrugated cardboard to make adaptive tools for working with children who use wheelchairs in order for them to paint, uh, just folding them up and taping them. They're rather inexpensive. I've created easels out of large pieces of leftover cardboard for someone's wheelchair, for someone who has a motor skill where they don't have much of um, range of motion in their arm. Um, I also find that utilizing a lot of some of the recycled materials that you receive. Um, we, Velcro is big. We use a lot of Velcro, and that can attach to a lot of individuals, especially we attach Velcro to a paintbrush, and it can attach to someone's uh, finger or hand if they don't have a lot of motor movement in their wrist. But we try to find materials that are really inexpensive that you can get at a local 99-cent store, has a lot of things, or Home Depot. Great. Um, an another catalog is School Specialty. And they actually have a section for um, children with special needs in the arts. So that's, uh, you know, if you want special scissors, that's a good place to go. Um, and, NASCO uh, is another company. NASCO, N-A-S-C-O. Right. They have a whole catalog of adapted equipment mm -hmm. and a lot of the art equipment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. I, I find, um, jumping along with uh, what Danielle was saying, yes, I have found that going to your 99-cent store, um, you know, for finding art supplies is really a great way to go. I use, um, uh, I design, uh, help kids design projects using rope and tape instead of, um, instead of markers or paint sometimes or using that as a guide for, for paint. Um, or drawing. Um, I, I use uh, 
lots of different types of textures, uh, uh, old placemats with textures on them, um, the rubberized mats, textures, bubble wrap textures, and do lots of painting on the texture and then printing them and cutting that stuff up for making really some amazing designs. Um, for uh, more sophisticated circumstances, um, the world of acrylic paint has changed also tremendously with uh, lots of wonderful types of um, techniques that you can get from making transfers from, um, from Xerox paper onto, onto panels or boards or, or canvas um, where you can uh, draw a design, copy it, and then transfer that design onto something else so that the paper is removed and the design is still there and building up all kinds of interesting glazes. Um, I'm, that's, uh, that's the world I'm discovering more of now and, and realizing that the acrylic paints out there really offer a lot for uh, children with special needs. Even the tempers have improved. You yes. get wonderful metallics, and they're washable, which is yes. what we like. But it, it's just amazing when I think, you know, even 10 years ago, a lot of these materials didn't even exist. Yes. And now it's just amazing what's out there. Right. There's a, Crayola also puts out something called a slick stick, which is, um, they're a little expensive, um, but they are of the different um, things you can draw with that are creamy. These are the creamiest. So for a child with an orthopedic problem, there's going to be a real nice glide for them to move all over the paper, and it does have a nice water-soluble component also. So um, lots of interesting stuff. Um, Pearl, have, Pearl yeah. uh, this is Nina. I actually wanted to ask you if you could share um, the way you work, uh, you use colored masking tape. I like this especially because it has a sound. Oh, yeah, that's the, that's the painter in me, yes. Um, we did, I've, I've been doing over the years uh, using, you have to start off with a uh, paper similar to um, oak tag um, or a bristol board um, or a canvas or a canvas roll, any uh, a, a something that will hold up when you put tape on it. And the kind of tape you need to use is called painter's tape. So basically, you can use um, painter's tape to work on a design and then have the kids, uh, the design now um, in nice, bold color up against the white. Um, and, uh, and kids can paint around it, it and then eventually pull up, when it's dry, pull up the, the tape, and then you'll have all these wonderful clean edges. It's a really... Um, one of, I've been doing this activity with uh, early childhood special need kids where we make shapes out of tape and then you paint in the shapes and then you pull it up and then what was once a line is now a full shape and it, so it makes a nice dynamic. I also used to use tape a lot with um, autistic kids and in the programs that I ran at the Queen's Museum also 
And what's great about using um, colored, just colored masking tapes in general is if you have to slow a kid down, um, asking them to draw with tape is one way to do it um, in terms of uh, designing large pieces, um, uh, doing mural-type projects. Um, we, um, I'm trying to think of some of the... Uh, we, we also use the tape um, to assist kids who are blind um, as a way to re reach out to other kids, to connect physically by pulling across and, and placing the tape down. And um, I used to really try to find as many tapes as I possibly can. Um, so, uh, so it's, yeah, it's definitely a place to go and experiment. Anybody else have something to share? Um, we have a, um, a few minutes left. I had uh, one more question I wanted to ask everyone, and, um, and that was uh, about how, how, how and if you use um, reflection at the end of your program. Sometimes, you know, um, having children go through a re reflective process of what just occurred is a good way to help them organize their own thoughts about what happened and make them aware of what they just created. And I was just wondering if anybody goes through that um, at the conclusion of their program. Danielle from the Queens Museum. Yes, Pro, we do. We do a closing where we actually have the students each take a turn and hold up the pieces that they've made. And they can describe it a little bit while we have a chance for the other students to spend some time asking them questions about why they chose that. So it really gives them some ownership of the piece that they made and some pride to end the workshop with. Anybody else? Carol, Angelica? Yes, this is Angelica. Uh, ours usually culminate with a uh, presentation, which is usually an intermodal presentation of presenting the artwork that has been created during the time, during the academic year together in the classroom with a through line of kind of a dramatic play where they're actors in, not just spectators, but actors in the presentation as well, both imaginatively and realistically sharing what they've done. So it helps to kind of holistically integrate um, in in the spontaneous kind of um, production at the very end, uh, just the kind of playful kind of reflection and processing of, you know, a celebration, really, of how far they've come from the beginning of, you know, echoing other educators on this panel that I can't do this, that I'm stupid or I'm not good enough. And, and seeing by the end how truly celebratory it becomes when and how it builds self-esteem, right, when they are just engaging in it and, and, and showing it off. <laughs> that's, that's the most um, kind of rewarding aspect of it for us as educators and for them as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, yes, 
I'm sorry, Pearl. I work with Angelica in, in the classroom, and also uh, um, as final events, we work with the kids on, on um, for several weeks. And for example, last year with some of the, of the students, we actually ended up with uh, creating an, exhibi uh, an exhibition of their artworks. And all the, the other students from the school came in and actually looked at the artworks that had title and, and a short story, and the students were there to explain their process, etc. So which was uh, actually really empowering for, for the students. So I just wanted to add that quickly. Um, I, I know for myself personally, um, I've been really trying to include lots more uh, drama or movement um, or expressive activities in, into my teaching. That that is really, really so important um, to have that uh, develop children's affect and, and help them make connections among one another. And often children with special needs have uh, issues in, in appropriate socialization. And by incorporating uh, drama or movement, um, or like I said, or expressive activities, you really help in that. And, and you also get their creative juices going for um, two-dimensional or three-dimensional work. Um, it's a really important part of, of effectively engaging children is to, is to think in a very creative way in the, in the dynamics of, of the lesson and the program. Um, I just want to say thank you again to Art Education for the Blind. This is Danielle from the Queens Museum. And um, if anyone wants to reach me, you can email me at access at queensmuseum.org. And I just want to congratulate everyone who is out there engaging a child with special needs and helping them create a bond to art for the rest of their lives. Thank you. Oh, thank great. You. Thank you. Ditto. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you all so much for um, your panel discussions today. It was very nice working with you all.